We are moving through the book of Isaiah, and uh, there's not a lot of churches that preach through the whole book of Isaiah, um, although I've heard of two recently that are doing that, and I'm encouraged by that. And there are challenges with preaching through such a large book, and uh, we're choosing to move at, at a fairly brisk fa- pace, but to cover all material, which means we have longer passages sometimes for our, our sermons, and, uh, and that today's one of those days. Um, we still read the whole passage at the out front of the service when we do that, or at the out front, at the front of the sermon when we do that, um, because we really believe it. God's, when God's word is read, that's when God's voice is being heard. It's the most important aspect of our service, that reading of God's word. And so we're going to be in Isaiah 28 and 29 today. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack in front of you that looks like this, it's on page 588, page 588 in the pew Bibles, Isaiah 28 and 29. If you're able to stand for the reading, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm, mighty, overflowing waters, He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. In that day, Yahweh of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filth and vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lip and with foreign tongue, Yahweh will speak to this people to whom he said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of Yahweh will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you've said, 
We've made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will, will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For Yahweh will rise up on Mount Perizim as in the valley of Gibbon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord Yahweh of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Ah, Ariel. Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by Yahweh of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he's eating and awakes and with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he's drinking 
and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, they say, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. It is not yet very little it, it is is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who's in the right. Therefore thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. This is God's word. You can be seated as we pray. God, my heart's so full. It's a long passage. There was much to just hear, but it's such a rich passage that we so need to hear. And so we together pray that this, this portion of your word, which you've given to us, would be heard by us. 
Cause our eyes to be able to see what you're saying. Cause our ears to hear what you're saying. Move in our hearts that we be changed by your word. We're asking for the work of your spirit. So would your spirit work in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Our religious leaders today are drunken idiots. Our political leaders today are drunken idiots. Our poets today, and by that I mean or include singers, songwriters, screenwriters, they're drunken idiots. And while preaching like that might listen, elicit an amen in many of our hearts, the joke is actually on us. Because every one of us, to varying extents, but every one of us is drawn to their spiel to embrace the proud, creator-defying, scripture-undercutting wisdom that they promote. And meanwhile, Almighty God stands above it all, appointing the rise and fall of nations, foretelling doom for those who practice injustice and promising hope and deliverance to those who put their trust in him and his Messiah. Drunken, babbling idiots who mock scripture or Yahweh of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. Which will it be? Tough choice. Well, obviously it shouldn't be, but it is. Because their help, their wisdom, their security, their comfort, it seems so much more tangible, so near, something we can grasp. And it's so in step with the prevailing winds of our day. Meanwhile, hope in Yahweh requires taking such a long view Trusting what we can't see. Depending on promises that as of yet are only partially fulfilled. So when big, bad Assyria is breathing down our necks, it feels a lot more reasonable to run to Egypt than to turn to Yahweh. When my heart feels uncertain, when Assyrian-like villains haunt my life. When the world around me seems unstable. It's so much easier to rest my head on the prevailing wisdom of man that's surrounded me since my youth. It feels more reasonable to run to the wisdom of our day instead of turning to Yahweh. And so, today, I want to use the whole sermon to give you eight illustrations 
that I hope will help us see the folly of trusting the drunks and the wisdom of trusting God. Eight illustrations to help us see the folly of trusting the drunks and the wisdom of trusting God. The first illustration is one from history. And we see it in chapter 28, verses 1 to 6. It's about the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim. By the time of this prophecy, they'd been a relatively strong and prosperous nation for some 200 years. And when that nation was founded, they had uh, broken off from the southern tribes, which means they'd rejected God's appointed place of worship, the temple, and they'd rejected God's appointed priests and instead built their own kind of place of worship and installed their own priests. It was actually a shrewd move. They could become religiously independent of the southern kingdom. And on the face of it, it had worked. Everything had gone well. I mean, the 200 years hasn't been, hadn't been all peaches, but they were largely able to prosper. Oftentimes, they'd even fared better than the southern kingdom. But look at this moment in history when this is written. Look at their proud crown. Already at the time of this prophecy, Assyria had come in and conquered them, and their capital... Samaria, which overlooked that fertile valley, which is referenced there in verse 1, it, it had fallen to the Assyrians. Now, not completely. They were still in some ways struggling for their independence. But they were largely under Assyria's thumb. So the, the proud crown they wore was anything but. And as Assyria would continue her aggression, Ephraim's fall would be complete and quick. Because of the way things worked with Assyria to the north coming through those northern kingdoms, she would be the first taken down. It's kind of like in the beginning of, or at the end of spring when you get those kind of first raspberries or the first figs on the tree. Just, they just get gobbled up, right? Gobbled up and eaten. Her proud crown is more like a fading flower. Which poses the question, is that the kind of crown we want to chase? There's a far better crown. It's described in verses 5 and 6. Yahweh himself can be our glorious crown. His, his kingdom formed with the, the remnant of those who remain faithful to him, which will be marked by justice and by strength. What a different crown. I want you to hear this. As foretold by the prophet, Ephraim has come to nothing. It's no more. It doesn't exist. Syrians sacked them, and it was the end. But God's rescue plan hasn't stopped. Jesus came. He showed us the way of his kingdom. 
And then he died on our behalf so we could be part of his kingdom. And he ascends and reigns in heaven and sent us his Holy Spirit. And one day he's coming to bring about the the complete arrival of his kingdom. Which crown are we chasing? Do we really want Ephraim's crown? Choose Yahweh's. That's illustration one, a story, a true story from history about two crowns, 28, one to six. Now for the second illustration, which is in verses seven to 13 of chapter 28, I want to take you to a frat house at 2 a.m. on a Friday night, or you could say Saturday morning. You walk in and the place reeks of alcohol. That smell only sort of masks the scent of vomit. Vomit that covers the tables and the carpets. Those that remain there at that point still parting are so drunk, they've defecated on the furniture. If you're looking at verse 8 in our passage, you see that word filth. That's actually what that word means excrement. And Isaiah walks us into that frat party and says, here are your leaders. Actually, strike that. Here are your religious leaders, your priests and your prophets, the ones charged with helping us see the vision of what God is doing in this world to render his judgments correctly. But they're out on Tinder, hooking up with girls. They're committing adultery with people who come into their office for counsel. They're using church donations to buy cars to give to their friends. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, in his translation of Isaiah, puts in his notes that these are drunken idiots. It's no wonder. Verse 9 suggests they aren't even fit to teach a preschool. But it gets worse. These religious leaders make a mockery of those who are trying to study God's word carefully. Those people, they just worship the Bible. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, boring, old, outdated, always such such heavy messages. Strike up the band, DJ, pour another round. We need to get rid of that dry old book and have some fun. And make no mistake, the words in verse 10 are meant to mock. The word precept in Hebrew sounds almost exactly like the word for filth or excrement from verse 8. And the word line sounds almost exactly like the word for vomit in verse 8. In fact, the most prominent Jewish translation of these verses puts it, mutter upon mutter, murmur upon murmur. It's almost like in their drunkenness, they're mumbling as they mock. 
Now this obviously, it's an illustration, right? Well, alcohol most likely did flow too freely among the religious leaders of their time and perhaps ours. The point is that they're a completely unbridled mess. They've abandoned the sobriety that God's word brings. Look at chapter 29, verses 9 to 10, as this is explained there. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For Yahweh's poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your head, the seers. And what I'm about to say, I am self-aware as I say it, and I, I say it with, uh, sobriety and, and self-examination, not self-righteousness. Many of our religious leaders today are too often drunken idiots. And sadly, this isn't just the domain of those who've moved away from preaching God's words faithfully, though that would be the main area. But even among those who faithfully preach God's word, there is a handful that don't faithfully live God's word. And I think these two are drunken idiots. So we must be wary of following a man, any man, no matter how impressive his religious resume or how impressive his Bible teaching. We need seers like Isaiah who hold out line upon line, but not because Isaiah is ultimately our great hope, but because God, who's inspired that word that's being preached, is our hope. Verse 11 tells us that in Isaiah's day, the religious situation had deteriorated so much that God's actual Edifying words are unintelligible to them, foreign gibberish. Interestingly, Paul will quote in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 11, saying that the unintelligible gibberish the Corinthians were so proudly using in their worship services. We don't know what's saying, but man, it feels good. It reminded Paul of how these prophets heard God's word. It was like gibberish to them. Paul is saying, when you want in your worship, when what you want in your worship service isn't line upon line, but rather gibberish, it's a sign you're not a true believer. And so when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All they hear is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 28, blah, 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 precept upon precept, mutter upon murder. That's what verse 12 is telling us, right? This offer of rest is not even heard. It's not a good sign. 
God's not ashamed of his word, even though they make a mockery of it. In verse 13, he boasts, it is precept upon precept, line upon line, and your mockery will become self-fulfilling. What you mock as boring and unintelligible will become that for you. God's word, instead of softening your heart, will harden it, and it will leave the drunken idiots falling backwards, broken, snared, and taken. Maple Avenue. There are many religious leaders who seem quite spiritual and wise, but who have drifted from a slavish commitment to knowing and studying and living God's word. Beware of following them Because, as Jesus said, when the blind lead the blind, both end up in a pit. Illustration 2, drunken idiots, 28, verses 7 to 13. Illustration 3, a bed that's too small, verses 14 to 22. I remember when my kids were little and were sleeping in a toddler bed, which is basically like a crib without railings, or their little railings. And I'd lie down with them at night, and I wanted to get some snuggles in. And so I would try to kind of lay in that bed with them. It was so uncomfortable. I'd have to contort myself all sorts of different ways just to try and fit in there. And I was worried the bed would break underneath me. Man, when you have toddlers, you are so dog-tired when you're putting them to bed at night, you're like, oh, I just am going to conk out. And I'd start to conk out. But because I was so uncomfortable, I could never stay asleep long. Or imagine it's a cold night and you're out sleeping in the, in the night and all you have is a, a narrow blanket. So you're trying to lie just so, hoping the blanket keeps you warm, but it's not because the air is coming in from the sides. And any time you shift, the blanket shifts a little bit and cold air sweeps in. You're just not going to get any rest. Always having to rearrange that blanket. That's the picture verse 20 gives us of trying to find rest on the false promises of man and empty religion. We're all basically good. Just follow your heart. It will lead you in the truest and best path. Oh, that's your impulse? If it's from deep down inside, you follow it. That's what will make you happy. God is love. And so anything that you call love, it's good. Yay, team humans, aren't we the best? can sleep on that bed at night. But when you wake up confronted with the twisted thoughts and desires inside you, you won't know what to make of it. And you won't rest long. Or when you watch the news or read the history books or have a conversation with your neighbor about their hard lives you realize this blanket isn't covering it. So God exposes it. Look at verses 14 and 15. 
their allegiances, political or religious, he says, are like trying to make a handshake agreement with the Grim Reaper. Let's make a deal. I'll give you this, and I don't have to die. Death's coming for you, no matter how shrewd you think your negotiating skills are, and your lame covenants and treaties will do you no good. And God goes on to say, a day is coming when he's going to lay a new foundation stone for a new kingdom, a kingdom marked by justice and righteousness, a kingdom that isn't built on lie upon lie, but it's instead built on line upon line, precept upon precept. This reference to the cornerstone in verse 16, it's one of those, we've been going through Isaiah, one of those Asianic clues. You know how he likes to drop these little things that kind of pique your curiosity. What is he talking? There's something amazing. I don't know quite what it is. And he just moves right on. He likes to build that suspense and kind of cumulative throughout his book of prophecies drive us to where we're going. God's bringing a cornerstone. What does that mean? What could that mean? Now, you could just keep reading in Isaiah, and the answer starts to become clear. But in both 1 Peter 2.6 and Romans 9.33, this verse is quoted, and it makes it explicit. Isaiah was pointing forward to Jesus, the cornerstone who would come and obliterate all lies, expose the vain religion of his day, and instead fulfill every line, every jot of Scripture. And Jesus one day will ultimately bring complete judgment on the whole land. But even in Isaiah's day, a smaller judgment was coming that according to verse 21 would be a little bit like when God brought King David victory at Perazim or Gibeah. It says, though, that this will be something new, something strange, something alien, because... Instead of God's judgment coming through Israel on the pagan nations, God's judgment would be coming through the pagan nations onto Israel. And in that day, the deluge would expose how empty her hopes were. Her bed of lies would be exposed as too small. Her blanket of lies would be exposed as too narrow. And then, in verse 22, he pleads with us, don't double down on this path. Turn to me. Remember what he offered in verse 12? True rest. In Jesus Our hearts, sinful as they are, can be made clean. Our awful deeds can be forgiven. Through Jesus, we can be sure of a secure relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator. So what bed do you want to lie down in? 
What blanket keeps you warm? Is it the grand sounding lies of this age that will ultimately be exposed? Or is it Yahweh's cornerstone, his new king and kingdom founded on justice and righteousness? Illustration three, a bed that's too small, 28, 14 to 22. Now, illustration four is an interesting one. I call it the wise farmer. It takes up the rest of 28, so 23 to 29. And it just describes a farmer going about his work. He knows how to flatten his land just enough. He knows how to plow or cut into it just right. He knows which seeds and which plants need what. Some plants, need to, plants when they grow, need to be crushed to be useful, while others just need to be beaten. And in his wisdom, wisdom given to him by God, he's able to produce good things. Why are we told this story here? Well, remember, it comes on the heels of a description of God both crushing and renewing. Of him leveling and cutting, of him working his vineyard, so to speak. It's as if to say, we all see the wisdom of the farmer. So can we not trust the true wisdom of the divine farmer, even when he is cutting and leveling, even when he threshes and crushes. This is Yahweh of hosts, after all, who, verse 29 says, is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. I don't know where you are at in the harvest cycle. Maybe right now you're being crushed and leveled. Or maybe you're being watered and growing. Maybe you're being threshed. Or we could expand the analogy to our church or evangelical Christianity. Let's trust. Trust the divine farmer. He's wise. He works all things well. Illustration for the wise farmer, 23 to 29, and we're halfway through the illustrations, which means we're at illustration five, and Ariel, verses 29, one to four. Sorry to the children of the 90s, this illustration has nothing to do with who's its and what's its galore. This Ariel is a name that comes out of left field. Nowhere else in all of Scripture is the name Ariel used. But here, God himself applies this nickname to his people. Now, the content of these four verses is pretty straightforward. He's announcing judgment against Jerusalem. The Assyrians are going to encircle Jerusalem and lay siege to it. You might remember I, just a moment ago I talked about in 2821... God was going to do something strange and alien. Instead of fighting for his people, he was going to fight against them. It's the same thing being said here. So in verse 1, we're reminded of when David encamped around Jerusalem, laying siege to it. And in verse 3, we learn that this time, God will, it's God who will encamp against this city inhabited by his own people. Why the reversal? 
We've already known the answer as we've been following along. It's reiterated later in 29, 13 to 14, which I'll just read. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. You see, the religion of their day wasn't really fearing God, beholding him, looking to him. Instead, it was something just learned by rote, as God's very word was ignored, those who tried to teach it mocked. And as a result, a prevailing injustice and unrighteousness. So the announcement of judgment isn't shocking. As much as it is, as it is if we've been following along in Isaiah, it's not. What is surprising is the new name, Ariel, which is why I said that's the illustration here. The name most likely is a nod to the altar of God in the temple because that's what it sounds like in Hebrew. There at the altar, I want you to think about what happened there. There at the altar, at the altar you see a picture of God's wrath and you see a picture of his forgiveness. Sacrifices were offered there showing the price for our sin and sacrifices were offered there showing that our sin can be atoned for. So as God, the divine farmer, tells Jerusalem that he must thresh her, he refers to her with this tender nickname, almost a pet name that reminds her and himself that he's also a merciful God. Back when I first started in ministry, one of my first interns was a man named Brett. And Brett wasn't afraid to be a bit unorthodox in his devotion to God. He married a girl in our 20s ministry. Um, Not too long after, they gave birth to a daughter and gripped by this passage, these verses of God's love for sinful Israel, as expressed in this name, he named his firstborn daughter Ariel. I mean, in, even in the name, you can almost hear the longing and love of God for his people. Ariel! Ariel! You can hear him saying that to you in a certain way. God will bring justice. He'll show how hollow our covenant with death is. He'll expose how how awful our bed of lies is. But he longs for us to turn, to know his protection. He is a God of wrath and a God of mercy. And for Israel particularly, as the covenant people of God, he calls them Ariel. Yes, he'll thresh. Yes, he'll crush. But he'll also redeem. And how? How is he going to redeem? In a certain way, the name Ariel is a bit of an Asianic clue. Yes, through a new cornerstone. 
but through a sacrifice, a better sacrifice, through atonement. Ariel, Ariel, Yahweh judges, but he also atones. Illustration five, Ariel, chapter 29, one to four. Now, I love illustration six. It involves a dream in 29, five to eight. Yes, God's going to raise Assyria against Jerusalem. Yes, they'll be threshed. Most of the land will be overrun by the Assyrians and Jerusalem herself will be laid siege to and all the things that she thought she could trust will be teared down. But this is Ariel we're talking about. So Isaiah gives an illustration that speaks of the mighty Assyrians like dreamers. Karen and I have been watching a, uh, a survival show where contestants are placed in the middle of a wilderness area by themselves with just a few survival supplies to see how long they can last. And inevitably... The, the few that don't, or there's some that quit right away, but, but the ones that last, it becomes all about trying to find food. And they are so hungry. And they start later on, and you know, as, as, the, as the weeks go by, they start every night when they're laying in bed, they dream about food, being able to eat their favorite foods. And then as they're enjoying it, they wake up. And it's like a cruel joke. It's all a dream. And Isaiah says these mighty Assyrians are just vain dreamers. They think they're routing Israel. But they're going to wake up to find it all vanished in an instant. Which is, happens exactly as it's, as it's foretold. You can le- read about it. We'll, we'll be learning about it later when we get to chapter 37. God can turn the mightiest human powers into a sickly bag of bones lying on their beds, dreaming of eating. Instant reversal as quick as waking up. Illustration six, dreams. 29, five to eight. Now the seventh illustration is a sealed book. 29, nine to 14. Now, in verses 9 to 14, we've read from this section twice already, so it's material we've covered. The drunken idiots are worthless to us because they teach us certain religious traditions, perfunctory rituals, but they don't help us behold God. They don't drive us to know him through his word, so they're blind. Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, Jesus says the same, the same vain religion was also present in the religious leaders of his day. And I think, sadly, much of religion today is the same. Now, there's an illustration that captures this so well. A book. We see it in verse 11. It's a book that contains a vision of all that is, of all of this, by which I think he means the ultimate cosmic victory of the cornerstone, the new kingdom marked by justice and righteousness. In other words, this book has the best news one could ever read. 
It truly is the greatest story because it's the true story with the truest of happy endings. Have you ever been waiting and waiting to read a book? Maybe a certain series had you hooked and you just couldn't wait for the next book to come out. Now imagine you were finally given that book, but it was sealed shut with seven unbreakable seals. There it was in your hands, but you couldn't read it. Or imagine suddenly you couldn't read it. It's like the print in it was Mandarin. You could look at it, but you didn't know what it was saying. That's what it's like when the seers and the prophets are blind. That's what it's like when God's word is taken from us. And when we reach a certain point of rebellion against God, he actually puts a veil over our eyes. He actually binds up the book. It cannot be ours to enjoy. Illustration 7, an unreadable book, 29, 9 to 14. That takes us to our final illustration, Talking Pots, 29, 15 to 16. I guess Isaiah is going full on Disney. We already had Ariel. Now we have Talking Pots. Don't worry, these don't bring out into a song about there's something there that wasn't there before. No, these talking pots are dark, more devious. This illustration exposes the error behind the drunken idiots and all who follow them. They're pots, but they don't think there's a creator who made them, so I can live however I want. And maybe there are some of you in this room who though you acknowledge with your lips that there is a creator, are living with certain secret sins. And you are saying, God doesn't see. This illustration exposes the reason trusting lies leaves our bed too short and our blanket too narrow because there actually is a creator God. And like a potter, he is in charge of what he created. He knows why he made them, and he knows what's good for them. There's a reason we all follow the manufacturer's recommendations when we get a new car. I've never seen someone get a new car and then go put diesel in their gasoline-powered car. You follow the oil change recommendations. Why? Because a person who designed this nice piece of machinery knows what he's doing. We ourselves were made from clay. Men formed from the dust. Woman from the side of that dust-formed man. Fashioned by a creator. Not by chance. You're not here by chance. It was not a cosmic accident. A creator designed you and me. And yet we rebelled against him. Adam and his serpent friend knew better than God. And look what happened. Sin and death were unleashed upon the whole world. And we, re we reel from that rebellion to this day. But still we repeat the same error over and over and over again, right on down through history, because the pot thinks it knows 
better than the potter. Well, you got this right, God, and this, and this. But over here, well, eh, just a little backwards. Doesn't jibe with my superior sensibilities. Well, on this over here, I mean, that just shows what a killjoy you are. Surely you don't expect me to deny that. Can we see the absurdity of it? We can't even create a cockroach or a gnat. Some of us can't make mac and cheese without ruining it. And yet we tell the creator that we know better than him? No wonder the beds we make are too short and the blankets we make are too narrow. Illustration eight, talking pots. I want to close the sermon the same way the prophet closes his, which you can see in verses 17 to 24. God is going to bring about a place of true rest. Reversals are coming. The great forest of Lebanon will be reduced to a field, and a field will become a great forest, verse 17. Or to put it differently, verse 18, the book will be opened. One will come who is able to break its seven seals because by his blood he ransomed a people for God. And the blind and the deaf will be able to read the great story, the story of God's triumph, where the meek and the poor are lifted up, but the ruthless and the scoffer and those who practice evil thinking God would never do anything about it are brought low. Verses 19 to 21. And when we see all that God does, ridding his Ariel of her shame through his cornerstone, through his sacrifice, when we see all that God does, what does verse 23 say we'll do? We'll sanctify the name of the Holy One of Jacob. Or as several other translations put it, we will hollow his name. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And I want you to catch that. There's a link between the hallowed name and the kingdom coming. In Isaiah, it's when God establishes justice, when he brings down the scoffer, when he stops the one who wants to pervert justice and mistreat people thinking God doesn't see it's when he cuts down the drunken idiots, when he silences the talking pots. It's then that his name is hallowed. It's when his kingdom comes that his name is hallowed. And it's the meek and the humble who tremble at his word, who genuinely stand in the fear of the Holy One, who put their hope in his cornerstone it's those that he will lift up and establish. They're the ones who get to read his book, who get to know his rest. The drunken idiots who mock God's word will fall. The talking pots who rebel against the potter will cease. They will wake up 
and realized their ephemeral power was just a dream. So let's not allow such idiots to make our bed. Let's guard our hearts from making covenants with them. And instead, let us allow it to ring in our ears and actually to hear the line upon line, precept upon precept of what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Amen. Hallowed be thy name. Would you pray with me? Father, we've covered a lot today, but such important words. By your Spirit, will you help us to stop being drawn to the lies of the drunkards? Instead, hear your word and come humbly to you, trusting the cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen.